yeah, and and like you say, the interesting thing there is this this getting stuck on rails and, and not being able to see outside of it. And I, I think the habit, habitual side of this is probably what drives a huge amount of it. Is like you say, you start making money playing a certain game, you start to label yourself as I am a cash game player, I am an MTT player. And you start deriving self-worth from the success you have in that particular game type. And then you're sort of locked in. And, and like you say, it, sometimes it takes extreme life events to come up to make people question, hey, was this the right path in the first place? But I would just say to anyone now, um, poker can be a wonderful career, but just be aware of what the career actually is for you and whether it's making you happy right now. And just be absolutely honest with yourself around that. Hi, it's Ranchix, and the following is my conversation with the top mindset and performance coach for poker players, Elliot Rowe. It's his second appearance on the show. This time we cover lots of topics, such as role sleep plays and helping us maintain high levels of performance. We dig into ways of improving our work and study ethics, how to make sure we don't confuse being busy with being productive. Elliot shares some tips and tricks for improving our performance at work and some tips for finding and maintaining a life-work balance. Additionally, I recommend that you listen to our first conversation with Elliot where we talk about the common roadblocks to realizing your potential in poker. That episode has received lots of great feedback as many listeners found it very useful. All the links are in the description and so are the timestamps to the topics in this conversation. I also highly recommend Elliot's mental game course. I found it very useful myself, as have many of my friends. The list of testimonials for the course is very impressive. Um, this course served as a springboard for advancing many poker careers to the next level, so at least take a look at it. I also encourage you to check out Elliot's website and his podcast, and if you haven't already, look into Elliot's Prime Mind app. Several top poker players I know find it quite useful, and you might too. And once again, check the description, and now, please enjoy this conversation with Elliot Rowe. Elliot, it's, it's great to have you on again for a second time uh, on the podcast. I'm, I was really looking forward to this conversation, uh, as I was to the first one, really. And uh, it's such a pleasure to have you back. Man, thank you so much for having me back on the show. Yeah. And I, leading up to this recording, I uh, listened to our first conversation. And uh, I think there's a lot of value there. And people should definitely check it out if they haven't. Uh, you shared so many great ideas and, and, and a lot of insight in, um, in that first one. I think we're going to cover slightly different topics, not to repeat ourselves. And I'm sure people can um, gain more uh, by listening to both, both episodes. Um, so before we started recording, we briefly discussed some of the topics we want to we wanna address today. And even though we kind of agreed, let's start with that big one. I want to first talk about sleep because you mentioned yeah. that that's something you work on uh, personally. And yeah. it happens to be that's something I work on personally right now as well. And I feel just how important sleep is for performance and for just general happiness. So I feel like sleep might be the glue that brings all the topics together. So why not just start there and um, let's discuss that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I've um, I've definitely seen it over the years with clients. Obviously, there's a correlation between how people perform and how they feel in life and the quality of sleep that they're getting. So a few years ago, I started tracking with an aura ring. Um, so tracking hours in bed, wake times, time and go to bed, um, HRV, body temperature, those sorts of things. 
And um, I, I just found that really useful as a process, just having the data uh, gamifies it to some extent. So when you get a score every day, you, you always want to see the score go up. Obviously, it doesn't always go up, um, but you start to see trends and you start to understand what impacts your sleep and what doesn't. And, you know, as well as being a coach myself, I, I, I have a number of coaches for me. So I have business coaches, a hypnotherapist, personal trainer. And then earlier in the year, I took on a sleep coach as well. Um, so shout out to, to Molly from Sleep is a Skill. Um, and I found it really interesting and very useful to look at just how deep you can go into sleep um, as a topic and the different things, the different factors that can impact the quality of your sleep. And then the extra level of accountability that having my own personal sleep coach actually introduced. Um, and as I say, I think it's something that so many people, are, you know, we're all aware of the things we can do um, to, to improve our sleep, but so many people don't have it high up their list of priorities, but it's where all of your recovery happens. Um, you know, it's where you physically and mentally recover from your day. And I think for high performers, especially, it's like some pretty low hanging fruit where you can see improvements in your performance. So yeah, right now it's a, it's a top of mind subject just purely because I'm working on it myself. Hmm. Yeah, I, I recently also got the Aura Ring. So I, I don't have years of data yet, but uh, indeed that, yeah, exactly, exactly the same thing. And uh, uh, yeah, that gamification aspect of it is uh, appealing, I think, to anyone who plays poker in general, you know, a bit of data, a bit of a bit of gamification and a bit of uh, tracking of mm. what's going on. It's, it's appealing. And um, it's definitely a great tool because I was also working on my sleep and trying to improve and experimenting with, with different things just to see how it affects my performance, how it affects my uh, alertness. Mm. Um, and that ring definitely feels like it's contributing uh, to the whole process really well. Yeah, I mean, you can't hide from the truth with the mm. ring. So it knows what time you go to bed. It knows what time you wake up. You can see if you've drunk any alcohol because it will drop your HRV. You know, mm. it's there's a lot of things that I think we, we can all kid ourselves, say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really good with my sleep routine. Um, but the difference is when you actually have it on a graph, you can see how good you are with your sleep routine. And, and it creates just a different level of accountability. Yeah, absolutely. And sleep, I think in general, is something that is quite neglected in the, in the poker community. Completely. And part of it is because of the nature of business. Uh, for people who play live poker, uh, it's pretty hard to have an optimal sleeping routine just because of the nature of live poker. But same applies to especially the high stakes uh, online cash games because you're sometimes forced to play odd hours that you otherwise wouldn't like to do. Mm. Mm, but in the mid-stakes, low-stakes environment, people are free to choose or are supposed to be free to choose their routine. Yet so many people put sleep on somewhere bottom of the list without yeah. understanding how much it actually contributes um, one of the advice I, I give to people when they're struggling with downswings, I say, well, get some rest, get, take a few days off, switch your mind off. Um, and getting some rest, really just getting a good night's sleep can make a, a big difference. Yet, you know, we sort of don't see it. Why do you think that is? Why do we put sleep on, on the bottom of the list? I, I think a lot of people 
view themselves because of their teenage years, early twenties as night owls and, and they believe they can be efficient. So that, that's one part. And then you, you see lesser effects, I think in, in your late teens, early twenties, than you do see as you hit your thirties and forties. So I definitely see a trend of my say older clients, but I guess, you know, these are my older clients, you know, thirties and forties take their sleep much more seriously because the impact of having bad sleep is more obvious to you than it is when you're a bit younger. Um, but then also, I just think people aren't really aware that if you haven't been getting good sleep, you just think it's normal to feel the way that you feel. And it's only when you put the extended effort in and you understand how much more energy you do have from having the good quality sleep that you can understand the value of it. It's a bit like if you've never exercised, you might not see exercise as important. But if you start exercising and you start feeling fitter and healthier and having more energy, then you understand the value of it. And I think so many people have just never really valued sleep um, quite mm. enough. And it's interesting you mentioned about the, from the poker player's perspective um, and controlling their sleep and how important it might be. I, I, I've recommended to a lot of people. And I mean, if you're an MTT player and you live in Europe and you're single, I think you're making a big mistake. So if I was looking to have a career in MTTs, I would be moving to South America. The advantage, or Canada, but probably because it's cheaper, South America, the advantage the time zone gives the players is extraordinary. And I've seen it when people have moved, um, their big blind per hundred improves and their lifestyle improves because a lot of the time they're finishing the MTTs at 10 p.m. instead of finishing the MTTs at six in the morning. And just, you know, logic tells you that the person playing at five, six in the morning isn't going to have the same level of focus as the guy who's finishing at 10 p.m. And it's these sorts of small edges that are available that I'm just surprised more players don't take. I mean, it's a big shift in life, but if it's going to be your career, I would say that's the sort, these are the sorts of edges you, that you should be looking for as a poker player. And it is more achievable for, for most people. If you're young, if you're single, there, there are lots of poker players around the world um, that you can connect with. You don't need to be lonely in these new places. Um, but the advantage that time zone gives you is extraordinary. Mm, absolutely. And not only for your alertness and your win rate, but also, as you mentioned, for just your general happiness. Yeah. Because you have more of a life. Uh, I, I've been in a position where I think when I first moved to Malta, which was um, o over 10 years ago now, um, even though I don't play MTTs, I just play cash games. But I was in the circle of friends where we all ended up playing till about six in the morning, um, having some drinks and then going for breakfast around 7 p.m. And it's pretty ridiculous to have breakfast at 7 p.m. when everybody's, you know, eating their steaks and, and you're just on your morning coffee. Uh, yeah. And just the social life wasn't great. Well, in Malta, it was good because of the circle of poker players. There were a lot of them. So we were all in this sort of weird out-of-time zone experience. But it's still not optimal. No, and, and this is one of the things that's come up in the, the sleep work that I've done. Um, the value of getting sunlight on your face and your body at different times of the day. So, so getting that early sunlight into your eyes um, actually helps with your sleep that evening. And mm -hmm. if you're working against circadian rhythms, um, you're effectively, you're fighting against what your body naturally wants you to do, what you've evolved to do. Um, and anytime you're fighting against evolution, there's, there's going to be some give in terms of energy systems, in terms of recovery, in terms of focus. Um, so, 
as I say, there are these sort of mechanical things you can put in place, mm-hmm. such as moving to a better time zone that really just solve the problem. Um, and I know it's not possible for everyone. If you've got a lot of family, it might not be easy, but there's a decent percentage of poker players where it's the easiest improvement that you can make in your game um, because it's literally getting on a plane and moving and your game will very likely improve your lifestyle improve it'll be easier to exercise it'll be easier to have a social life and your body will be doing what it's evolved to do rather than trying to force it to do something that it hasn't Mm -hmm. absolutely and for people who can't move um, they can change the game mtts happen to be scheduled and and they you know you you don't have much choice uh, as to when to play them but cash games, you have much more freedom. And even though some people might say, well, I'm an MTT player, I'd rather do that. But as you said, if you're looking at the long term and if you're looking at it as a career, uh, something that fulfills you and keeps you healthy, and that doesn't mm-hmm. kill you in the process, making the switch might be might be an important thing to do. Yeah, I mean, game type and hours played is, is significant. And I mean, this is, again, with sort of cash games or MTTs, um, MTTs is very structured. You're going to have to play an awful lot of hours to be successful in MTTs. There's not really any way around it. Um, for cash game players, um, they, they probably on average play about half the hours as the MTT players from what I see. Mm-hmm. So if an MTT player is playing, you know, I guess five days a week, they might be playing 10 to 12 hour sessions. A cash game player... 25 to 30 hours a week uh, it's a pretty big quality of life difference um so there are a lot of factors to take into account when you think about the direction you want to take in your poker career um from you know online or live mtt cash you know the spins um or obviously all of the other different mixed game types um but there are a lot of factors and i think a lot of people sort of as we were saying earlier, they sort of fall into poker and they're like, oh, I guess I'm an MTT player. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to make this a career, it's a really good idea to look at all of the different options and all of the different factors and what you want your life to look like longer term. Um, because just so few people do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to come back to to the discussion of, of the hours. Uh, but before we go there, what are some of the other techniques that you discovered for yourself that help you imp- improve your um, sleeping rhythm. You've mentioned sunlight in the morning, and and that's mm-hmm. something that I discovered some time ago as well, and it definitely works. Um, yeah. Another thing that I found useful is viewing uh, sunlight in the evening, so the sort of um, the, the, yeah, sunset the kind of the red, yeah. the red colors. Yeah, yeah, the, those are those are quite useful as well, and obviously the simple one of dimming the lights um, in the evening so that, you know, you you just settle into that relaxed kind of state. Um, What other things did you find useful for yourself? Um, Controlling the temperature. Um, Mm -hmm. So actually increasing the temperature of the house in the day and then decreasing it at night. Again, what you're trying to do is um, sort of emulate nature. So our bodies are designed for it to be light in the day and dark at night, but also warmer in the day and colder at night. So if you turn the temperature up a few degrees in the day and then down a few degrees at night, that can make a big difference. Um, Just being very strict on going to bed at the same time every day and waking up at the same time every day, just a real routine around it seems to improve quality very substantially. And then probably the best device outside of the aura ring, um, 
the best device I bought was is called an Ula by a company called ChiliPad. I think the website's chilisleep.com. Um, and it's like a mattress topper. The Ula's their, their premium product. Uh, it's a mattress topper with, you have a box. And for us, we've got two, one for me and one for my wife, either side of the bed. And then you set the temperature of the bed. So it sort of pumps either cool or warm water through the bed at a certain temperature. And it comes on automatically. And then in the morning, it starts to warm to wake you. And I found, I noticed a big difference when I started using the Ula um, to, to basically get a different depth of sleep. I sleep hot and my wife sleeps cold. So it makes setting the temperature of the room quite difficult. Um, mm -hmm. But now that we can, you know, she can choose whatever temperature she wants on her side of the bed, I can choose mine. Um, that That's actually had a significant impact. And if they are available in the country that you're in, I would really recommend going for one of those because I saw a pretty substantial shift. Hmm, fantastic. Yeah, I was actually, I heard about this one, this specific product before, um, another product, which was by uh, Eight Sleep, I think. Yeah, they, they similar have a whole mattress. That, yeah, so yeah. Eight Sleep's a whole mattress. Yeah. And this is just I think a they also have topper. just the topper as well. Oh, they do? Oh, okay. I, I think so. so I, I haven't so really investigated. It was something on my list for, for next week because I, I'm really at the point where I think I, I need it. Uh, and we have the same, and I think everybody has the same uh, problem. If if you sleep together with with your wife or your your partner in bed, the temperature preference for men and women usually very different. <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard to to find comfortable level, and usually women win in terms of what <laughs> has to be comfortable. So we have yeah. to kind of sacrifice uh, from the get go. And just one other thing, I wanna. Oh, maybe there's anything else uh, that comes to mind that um, is useful. I've got some of the the blue light blocker glasses. Mm -hmm. um, I use them more intermittently, probably a couple of times a week. So if I end up watching TV at night, um, they, I do notice a difference with that. Um, so if you use those for for an hour or so, um, there seems to be a bit of a shift. Um, but really, the the cooling the bed, the routine, the temperature, and the light. Oh, and also the final thing is sort of last eating time. So trying to make sure that the last food that you have is at least a few hours before you go to bed. Mm -hmm. And that seems to have an impact on depth of sleep also. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that we're on, on the same track <laughs> and, and we see that the same things work. And I can, I know that a lot of people, especially the younger people who will listen to this, they would listen, oh, sleep, yeah, whatever. And This is boring. Yeah, <laughs> is, This is not for me. This is not so impactful. But as you described earlier, the because it's a gradual effect, it's not like one day you just realize, oh my God, I was great and now I'm very tired because I lack sleep. Because it's a gradual process, especially in your younger years, you don't even notice that you're more irritable, that you're more impulsive, which produces more downswings, which produces more uh, tilt, which produces more frustration, more frustration less focus at the table. So especially for those longer sessions, you're not going to be as fresh. You're not going to recover as, as, as easily. And because you're not recovering as easily, you don't bounce back from the bad days as easily. And, and the sort of general buildup of negativity and, and, um, and um, hardship uh, it doesn't go away, which it should with good sleep because the good sleep is supposed to fix those things for you. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's sort of this link to all of these soft skills off the table. Um, 
as you say, it, it catches up on you very gradually, um, but they are real things. Um, that, that I see extraordinary differences when people are exercising when they aren't exercising. Big differences if they're having a bad diet and they're drinking versus if they start cleaning up their diet. And you know, they, these things don't seem important until you realize that most of the top professionals in the world are pretty good on this stuff. And there's a reason, like most people would prefer to not have to put the effort into these areas, but the top people in the world are all choosing to put effort into these areas. And there's no, there's no coincidence there. So I would say, you know, if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, I'm not sure how important sleep is for me, I, I would say, have a look at the behaviors of those who you're trying to emulate and question why it is important for those people. Um, and I, and I think if you, if you sort of work on that, you can generally see these trends of, yeah, there's the soft skills matter because if they didn't matter, those are the highest stakes, the best players in the world, they wouldn't be putting the energy and effort into it because it wouldn't be worth their time. Mm. Yeah, and I think in, unfortunately in poker, when we're in this position where a lot of the examples out there are not so great because you know some of the best known players, some of the most successful players really neglect, neglected their sleep and in general the healthy lifestyle for quite a bit and and these are still uh, front and center of attention in terms of wow look at what he achieved and he achieved it because of the sacrifices because of you know we we tend to hear these stories of people sleeping four or five hours a day consistently just because well the high stakes game is running and i have to be there mm, and i i'd argue that these are the exceptions and they are still probably leaving something on the table by by not being fully present by not being being fully recovered so you know and i think if you look at the you know if we look at the high roller circuit you're not looking at a circuit of very unhealthy people anymore like uh, most of the players who you would really you know respect the way that they they um, approach the game i would say it's very rare for me to talk to any of those guys who don't have a personal trainer you know, nearly everyone is organized with their food, with their exercise. Nearly all of them have meditation practices of some sort or another, um, be it meditation, the hypnotherapy stuff that I do, or yoga, like something, some kind of those approaches. And then obviously sleep's more difficult for the guys who are on the, the MTT um, scene, because it, obviously there are pressures that come with that. But most of those guys now, they really do look after themselves in a different way to five or 10, 20 years ago. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's why I wanted to point it out, you know, because mm -hmm. we still see the public because people who are taking care of themselves to that extent are less interested in being in the in the public <laughs> side. <Front and center>. <laughs> <laughs> so the ones that we see shouting the most are, are not necessarily the best examples of what it what it takes what to it be, means to be a, a true professional. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I just hope that, you know, at least some of the listeners will consider uh, sleep because for the longest time I was guilty of just neglecting it. And I always saw that I perform better if yeah. I play in the morning and if I have a consistent wake up and go to sleep time. It was always the case that 
my performance, my win rate, everything is just better and I'm just happier. Obviously, I'm happier because everything You're is good. Well. <laughs> I'm yeah. winning more. I'm feeling better. So it's a sort of circle that just perpetuates. Um, but I never thought much of it. I always noticed this occurrence, but I never, for a long time, never took serious measures of, okay, I really need to put sleep as a long-term priority. Sure, you can sometimes sacrifice it and you sometimes have to. You can't be completely rigid with it, but in the long term, you really need to watch your sleep. Mm, definitely. And speaking of long term, the, the first topic that we wanted to discuss is the topic of goals, but goals more in, in a sense of why do we play poker? Because... Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll give the backstory. Um, currently, I see a lot of my friends in, uh, in a position where they're transitioning away from poker. Um, and some of them are really in the kind of a limbo of not knowing exactly what's next, exactly what to do. Because it happened kind of abruptly for them. One day, they just, they just realized, well... I guess I don't want to play poker anymore. I guess I don't have anything else to do. Uh, financially, I'm fine, so I don't have to do anything, which is obviously mm. a, a privileged position to be in. But then when we talk about it more, they can't put the finger on why did they play poker in the first place? Why did they invest 10 years of their life into that profession? And not that they regret it, but there was never any underlying goal right and when somebody says well yeah but look you're so successful so it must have been a great thing the question is you could have been successful in something else as well right so it doesn't success doesn't necessarily justify the path um so i want to dig into that because i see a lot of people not knowing exactly why they're doing it have you noticed that as well um let's start with that have you have you noticed that yeah i, I mean i've had lots of clients um leave poker over the years uh, i think there's sort of a natural with with anything that you're doing um typically there's a natural amount of years that you're going to want to invest so i you know there are going to be a few players who yes they're playing from their 20s to their 70s but it's going to be the tiny tiny major minority um the majority of players you know they're playing from their early 20s to their early 30s if they have if, if they fail they leave because they've got no money um, and if they're successful they they typically make enough money to try something new i think poker does give it creates a level of competition that a lot of people find attractive and it can be quite hard to find in a lot of other jobs so you're competing every day and there's also the roller coaster of emotion where obviously we're professionals we're not gambling however there, there is a rush that can come with poker that you will also see with stock trading and some other jobs, but in a normal nine to five, you're probably not going to get the same level of emotion that you feel in poker, which in some cases is a good thing. In some cases it's a bad thing, but it can become addictive to people. Um, so I've definitely seen this trend of, you know, players reaching a moment where they just say, Hey, this, this is no longer for me. Um, in terms of why people ended up in poker, I think there's a, you know, it's a fun game and it's something people love. 
And with anything that people love, you have to be very good at it to make money. So if you're good enough to make money, you're probably a, a very strong poker player. And I think when you see that you have the opportunity to make money from home potentially or travel the world and make money, um, if you're 21 years old, there aren't many jobs that can offer you the same amount of freedom. So I would say that the trend I've seen for, for when I talk to players about, hey, why did you start in the first place? It tends to be the word freedom comes up over and over again. Um, ironically, by the end of their careers, they, they sort of, they can be reaching a stage of saying, I feel like I've lost my freedom because I feel I have to be in these high stakes games and they are played at four in the morning or I have to be nice to the whales um, because otherwise I don't get invited back. Or, you know, the MTT schedule doesn't fit with my life now that I've had a child. And that that's a big difference as well. So just as you evolve through your life, the, the freedoms that you get from it do adjust. And um, also what you see in your friends is different because when you're 21 and you're making money at home playing poker, that's much, much better than your friends who are 21 and they're working in a supermarket. But when you're 35 and your friends are running companies, sitting at home playing poker isn't quite as cool in a lot of cases. And I think it's the sort of the, the seeing what other people are doing at your age can also be a big factor in, in why people start to move out of the game as we start to hit mid thirties. These are just the trends I've seen over a number mm -hmm. of clients. Mm. And I, I want to also pick up on what you said about to win at poker, you have to be mm. successful. And that feeling of I'm successful, I feel like that's something that drives a lot of people in this career to keep going. As in, mm. if you ask them why you play poker, because I'm good at it, yeah. which is a big thing for the ego. And it's a decent reason, to be honest, because, well, why not play poker if you're good at it, right? Yeah. Um, but as you said, once you reach the mid-30s, because I'm good at it, maybe is not uh, a good enough justification for a lot of those people. And also, as you said, you see the example of other people being good at other things, and you might start questioning, well, um, am I going to play till I'm 50? Or am I going to start trying to be good at something else? Because, you know, these people with a lot of drive and a lot of work, great work ethic and a lot of ambition, they do want to move on, but they maybe don't want to leave it till it's kind of too, too late. late. Yeah. And, and, and that definitely, you know, is a real thing um, because you do have to work out. I mean, let's say you're going to work until you're 65. So you've spent the first decade of your working years playing poker and you've become financially successful. Um, and there is going to be a stage where if you don't make the transition out now, it's more difficult. Switching to another career in your mid to late 40s or 50s is dramatically more difficult than switching into a career in your mid-30s. So there is that sort of, you have to be aware of um, how many years you want to be giving to the next career mm. if you're looking to take that route. Um, yeah. Also, I've noticed a large number of players um, will be looking to do some work that they feel is giving back to society in some way. Like this is a trend I've, I've definitely noticed. Um, when I've spoken to people leaving the industry. And, and I think that's something that also comes up that sort of, you know, I've made a lot of money playing this zero sum game. And now 
I want to be, you know, a bit like, you know, we released the the Prime Mind app to help people through Fedor and, um, you know, these sorts of, or the charity work that a lot of poker players do, there seems to be this trend of, and in the next part of my career, I, I want to be adding value. And, and that's an interesting thing for me to notice in those conversations that come up. Mm -hmm. But that must be also um, a factor of age. Once you get older, you mature, your values shift a bit and, and you mm -hmm. go from perhaps this self-centric. Me, word. me, me, me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you start to think, because obviously you, you probably already have a family or at least thinking about it. And uh, so your values shift and, and your perception of what's important shifts a bit as well. Um, but also for people just starting out, I think it's important to... Ask yourself these questions of why exactly am I playing poker and and keep asking those questions because the, the reasons can change over time. And the thing that I see which bothers me and I wish to help uh, these people when I see that they're in this um, sort of rat race, they became good at the specific game. And their reason to play the game was, well, I'm good at it and I'm early 20s, why wouldn't I? I'm making a lot of money, I'm having a lot of fun, I'm having freedom, or at least perceived freedom, because mm -hmm. if you don't really realize your freedom, you don't necessarily, well, you have it on paper, but that's about it. But, so you get into a specific game and a specific career path, but don't switch and consider any other options. Like we were talking about switching from MTTs to cash games. Um, or even just considering moving to another country, right? So a lot of people just get into these rails um, and they just keep going without actually making any decisions on, should I do something different? Would it be better for, for my life? Would it be better for my win rate? And at some point you need to find a balance between your win rate and, and your life because you know just maximizing the win rate is not necessarily a great great thing for the long term. Yeah, and and like you say, the interesting thing there is this this getting stuck on rails and and not being able to see outside of it, and I I think the habit habitual side of this is probably what drives a huge amount of it, is like you say, you start making money playing a certain game, you start to label yourself as I am a cash game player, I am an MTT player, um, you start deriving self worth from the success you have in that particular game type, and then you're sort of locked in. And, and like you say, it, sometimes it takes extreme life events to come up to make people question, hey, was this the right path in the first place? But I would just say to anyone now, um, poker can be a wonderful career, but just be aware of what the career actually is for you and whether it's making you happy right now. And just be absolutely honest with yourself around that. Um, and and one, one thing I would like to say in terms of like reasons to play poker um, I believe as a personal growth tool, it's exceptional. So for teaching you discipline, um, for teaching you focus, um, for teaching you to be able to learn things that are complex, uh, to be able to dis deal with big emotions and disappointments, um, poker actually utilized in that way as a way to improve yourself and develop as a human, uh, I think is really, really strong. So I know a lot of people out there are like, I, I'm only playing poker. You know, what's the value of this? Uh, the truth is like when you finish your career in poker, you're probably a very balanced, well-educated, 
person who's got a lot of self-drive and that's actually really valuable in the jobs market so mm-hmm. so you know don't don't sell yourself short when you think of moving to another career because you've probably done more self-development work than the people who just went out of out of university and went straight into a nine-to-five job because they haven't dealt with the same pressures as you and they haven't dealt with the same need to be a self-starter that you've dealt with mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I, I agree completely with you and, and also this uh, accountability which comes with poker because you have nowhere to hide. You can't can't hide behind. The graph it. is the graph. <laughs> exactly. The graph is the graph. Your win rate is the win rate, and there's nowhere to, to hide. You can't hide behind uh, your colleague's crappy decision or your boss is an idiot. You know, you, you don't have that excuse. Yeah. So that that is a great thing. But also, there's a other side to this coin because I've noticed it in myself and other people that I know that this drive um, to improve and at some point when you reach the top and you realize, well, I'm good at making decisions, et cetera, et cetera, you sort of extrapolate that I'm just good at making any decisions, which is not the case. You're good at making the decisions at the poker table, but you might actually not even be able to make a good decision about which country to live in. Right, and we tend to forget that because you get a sort of sense that I can do anything, yeah, which there's is a halo, there's a halo effect. That's yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the best place to look at this is look at how sure everyone is on Poker Trip Twitter that they're right. Like, I mean, if you look at Poker Twitter and you're talking politics, you're talking science, you're talking it's space travel. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, there are a lot of poker players out there who will have very firm beliefs that they were absolutely correct. And, you know, I have a feeling that that's very much linked to um, how things have gone. Yeah. Um, they, they're great at poker and and maybe they're extrapolating some things from that. That you know, and Often these are very intelligent people, um, but you're right. It, it doesn't necessarily transfer. Mm. And also the work ethic. I feel like, at least for me, the path was when I started poker, it was all in jumped into it and it consumed all of my day, all of me, especially in the beginning until I started to find some sort of balance. Uh, And what I see when people transition, they go into the new thing all in and Mm -hmm. sacrifice everything and get consumed by it again, which is sometimes a good thing, sometimes not such a good thing because there's a difference between being busy and being productive. Um, and for example, when you were mentioning that, you know, the MTT players would be playing maybe 50 hours a week or or more, and the cash game players would be playing 25 to 30, 40 hours, depends on, on, on the, on the person, but yeah. And, and they would obviously spend a lot of time studying and I, and I see some people would claim, well, I'm working 70 hours a week as a cash game player uh, i might be playing only 30 but the rest of the time i'm yeah. i'm studying um and the question is do you really think those extra 30 hours you put in in the studies are really efficient and a lot of people in poker fall into the trap of viewing the busy time as the productive time which ne- doesn't necessarily reflect reality yeah and one, I would I would question a lot of the time when someone says, hey, I do 20, 30 hours a week of study. 
um, that they're not. <laughs> I mean, it's it's quite rare in poker that people are really putting in solid study of those sorts of hours. I mean, I encourage it, um, but I think there are a lot of people who they think about the the heaviest study week that they've done, and then they they mold the, you know then that's that's what they describe to people as this is the amount of study I do every week. Um, but if we actually looked at month over month, the average isn't close to the number that a lot of people actually say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of um, just quality of study, it, it has to be um, intense, focused time, ideally on a part of the game where you know you have a weakness. Um, or, you know, if someone's a newer player, just really nailing the fundamentals week after week after week. Um, what what I've certainly seen with mistakes people make with studying is, and especially with beginners, ironically, um, They'll, they'll get obsessed with putting large numbers of hours into, you know, river decisions that are going to come up incredibly infrequently. And then they'll sort of, they'll, they'll want to be right in this certain spot and they'll invest tons and tons of time into it um, rather than putting time into the situations that are going to come up time after time after time after time. And it's because, you know, the fundamental work can be a little bit more boring Um However, that's where you see the level ups in, in players' games. So I would say focus on the things that are going to come up most, most frequently. Um, and then when you have the study time, have in your calendar the sort of study that you're going to do. So today I'm going to be working with my coach on this. You know, on this day, I'm going to be doing this work in Pio. On this day, um, there's a new series that's come out on Run It Once. I'm going to be studying those videos on these days. Um, but definitely pre-plan your month of study where you feel it's going to fill the gaps in your game best rather than just put study in your calendar because a lot of guys will put study in their calendar and it'll be study time, but really it will be 80% playing on the internet time and 20% study time, Mm -hmm. like, you know, half an hour of deciding what topic they're going to cover that sort of thing. So you're right. There's, there's study and there's study. um, And, but there's also the honesty factor over, you know, when someone says how many hours they're doing, really, you know, they should question themselves as to was that their best week or is that what they're doing every week? Mm-hmm. Two things I want to add to this. Um, the first thing I want to add, the people who claim that they study those crazy hours, they might actually believe that. Oh, sure they do. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but and what I mean by believe that not only that they believe that it's their best time, but that it's their average because you might have study time in your calendar or you might think you're studying, but at the same time, before you get into the session, you might read Facebook for a bit, be a bit on Twitter, uh, do this, that, that, and 40 minutes pass, you don't notice it. And then you do a bit of study already a bit tired. And so probably quite inefficient. And there's your first hour. <laughs> and there's your first hour. And and that happens a lot. I feel like this yeah. procrastination um, and not just having a strict approach to it because, well, if you really want a highly focused study time, you have to plan it. There's no way around it. It's not, not just going to happen accidentally, which brings me to the second point, which you mentioned putting specific study types in your calendar, which I find very, very useful for myself. And I believe it would be so useful for anybody, really. What it helps you do is you don't make, you don't need to make this extra decision. Hmm. What I mean is when the 
hour comes and it's your study hour, if you don't know what you're doing, there's one more decision you have to make. You have to think about what am I doing? And also, you'll usually find yourself picking the thing that you like doing best, not the thing that's going to necessarily give you the most value. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that advice definitely is is really valuable. Just just study, um, putting a specific um, thought through agenda for your week for studies. It's 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 so so valuable. What other things? Uh, can you think of that can help people improve their performance? And by performance, I mean performance at the tables, because oftentimes, as we just talked about studies, people focus too much on the study process, not thinking about that. That's not how you play. Hmm. If you practice tennis, you can read about tennis all you want that doesn't account for much you might understand the theory of it doesn't necessarily allow you to execute it and having this divide between what you study and how you make decisions is detrimental to a lot of people and that's why the studying fundamentals as you said that's usually the the best idea especially for the beginning players studying fundamentals is very useful because that sips through into your decision-making process Hmm. and that understanding and even just thinking through the concepts allows you to um, make your decision-making process better. Uh, And obviously for people who've been doing this for for years and years, their decision-making process already evolved to such an extent that when they're studying, they also consider it from the actual perspective, how they would play without perhaps even thinking about it uh, consciously but yeah so back to the question what other things could be useful for people to improve their performance at the tables um i've seen some players over the years um who will set aside um sort of study play i guess um so uh mtt player who um wants to focus on final tables, uh, will start playing sit and goes. Um, or they'll um, they'll focus on playing heads up poker for a small amount of time. So they'll sort of fill in the gaps in their MTT game by working on the specialist areas individually. And they'll have that set out and sometimes not particularly, you know, not necessarily the highest stakes, but just getting the reps on effectively playing something more similar to a final table or playing very small field tournaments so that they hit final tables much more frequently. Um, and seeing that as part of, you know, they're, they're obviously playing for money, um, but they're actually seeing that as part of their study routine um, so that they're getting in more reps in that way. Another thing is focusing on a specific part of the game in certain sessions. So, you know, my main focus for today is defending the big blind at the the correct ratios and they'll go into a session and play a session with just focusing in on this one part of the game that they've been studying that week or or is their area of focus so I've, i've seen that be really effective and then also you know from more the mindset side that the stuff that i work on um what's really important is if you know the answer to what you should have done after you've played but emotionally you weren't able to do it at the table, that's when you need to be working on your mindset. 
So if you knew you should have folded and you still called, and then afterwards, if you looked at the hand history review, it was a clear fold, but you called. More technical work can't solve that because you already knew the answer. So more time invested in study doesn't solve that problem because you knew what to do and you chose not to do it. And that's where the mindset work of I'm, I'm effectively helping players make decisions they already know they should make and stopping them making the decisions they shouldn't make. Um, and that's the difference with the sort of the technical side and the mental game side is if you know what to do technically and you, and you're not doing it, then you need to work on your mental game. But if you don't know what you should be doing technically, you really, you need to work on your technical game before you work on your mental game, because, you know, you need to know what you're supposed to be doing, um, before you, we bring you back to that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. But how could people or understand what they know and what they don't know well let me just explain what i what i mean before you get into the answer because what i see especially in the beginner players overconfidence in their hmm. judgments and when you ask a player who's been around for a couple of years they're going to be confident on most of their decisions yeah and yet when I talk to people who've been around forever, uh, they're less and less, less confident, confident for all of the decisions. Obviously, there are still some which are trivial and uh, yeah. there is no discussion there. But a lot of mm, decisions sort of do have a discussion. Well, I could do that. I could do that. And which are the other factors? So how can people become better at evaluating what they know and what they don't know? The first thing is being able to implement what they believe they know. So if we take that player who I know exactly what to do, but I just can't do it. I knew I should have folded, but I called. And then that's why I lost. So if we can get that player actually playing in the way that they believe is correct. So they've, they've lost the excuse of I'm not able to do what I believe I should do there. And they're actually playing the way they believe is correct. After a while, their graph will show them how good they are. And they've lost the excuse of saying, I'm just tilting, I'm not capable of doing it. So, so that tilt actually defends the ego to some extent, because they can always make the excuse of I would be winning, but I would be winning, but. Um, so the first thing is them being able to actually apply what they believe is technically correct. And then our graphs will, will show us the, the answers. And then I always say to people, like, get a coach who's one level above you. And, you know, and, and just be listen to what they say and listen to what they're seeing and then gradually sort of move up that way. And that's, and that tends to be a sensible way for most players to evolve. Um, so, you know, if you're in the 200 Zoom pool, find a coach who plays 500 Zoom um, and, and, you know, and moving up. And obviously, if you get lucky and you can get a world-class coach who'll pay you a lot of attention, that's, that's amazing. But it, it's just not always reasonable bankroll wise to pay them for coaching or percentage that you'd have to give up. It can be very difficult. Um, so just keep getting coaches who you respect their game to judge your game. And if the coach is telling you you're making a lot of mistakes, rather than defending yourself, really think about why he would be saying that or she'd be saying that. 
Um, and I think a lot of players get defensive. Someone, they get a coach, the coach is saying they're doing something wrong and they spend the rest of the coaching session trying to defend their actions rather than trying to learn as much as they can and then work it out for themselves afterwards. So really try and be open to any criticism and you know, utilize your hour to get as much information as possible, whether you agree with it or not. And then afterwards you can work through it and you can do all of the maths, but don't spend an hour arguing that, no, actually I was right to a coach who's a higher level poker player than you. Hmm. And I, I think that defensiveness applies not only to external opinion, but very often to, to your own opinions. And you, you sort of see a mistake, the first instinct, well, that was a mistake. And then your mind, mind starts working in finding a narrative in which justify. world it's not a mistake. <laughs> yeah. And that is as dangerous, maybe, if not more, because you're more so, not only yeah. fooling yourself, you're stopping yourself from progressing. And the examples, the concrete examples would be, well, yeah, normally it's a fold, but this guy, but, my opponent, yeah. you know, he's a fish. Whatever and you haven't means. seen, you haven't seen him for the last hour. You haven't seen what he's been doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it comes up again and again and again, and which occasionally could, in fact, be true. But if it's the excuse for most of of the plays which are questionable, um, you have to ask yourself: Am I making a good just judgment on what this player actually represents? Mm. Yeah, and, and people find it very easy to make those mistakes. Yeah. yeah, because again, we're all defending our egos at all times. As as much as we work on it, there's there's some level of I'm right going on for most people. And it's very hurtful and difficult to admit that you're wrong. And it's scary to admit that you're wrong if it's in your profession. Because you know, you've told your parents that you're a winning player and that they can trust you, and it was a good idea to not go to university. And there's there's all of this built up emotion around I'm doing this because I can be successful in it. And anytime there's something that threatens that, um, the ego is going to clam up and trying to find a desperate excuse to say, oh no, it's all okay. It's okay. I was right. I was right. Because it, it, it keeps the feelings of being safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then that, that is the moment where we start using the graph as an excuse. As you can see, I'm running very bad, so hence yeah. the downswing, and uh, which is all good as long as you take care of all the other things. But very often, people just spiral out of control and just keep tilting more and more, and then the line between the downswing and pure tilt is so blurred that they don't even see the difference, um, and that that is a dangerous uh, situation to be in. Yeah, and I think. Um... If you're in a downswing, it, it usually is a time to really dig into study. So if you're starting to downswing, always assume it's your fault. So always start with the assumption that you're doing something wrong um, because there's no real benefit from blaming variance. And at worst, you're going to improve as a player because you put in more study time. So the worst case scenario of assuming you're wrong is you're going to improve. So you may as well assume that it's you making mistakes. Um, and then all of the soft skill things, they're the things that seem to drop away when people go into downswings as well. So they'll lose their exercise routine, their diet will fall off, they'll be fighting with their girlfriend, their relationships will get worse, um, their sleep patterns will be off, they're potentially drinking more or doing more drugs. Um, all, all of these things, it's like 
you want to control it all as much as possible and set routines when things aren't going well, um, because that's going to give you a sense of control and it's not going to allow your emotions to spiral quite so heavily. Oh, and then obviously bankroll management during downswings. Um, a lot of people go for the Hail Mary and they're like, I know what I'm going to do. I've been unlucky, so I should just jump up in stakes because, because I'm owed. Um, and obviously, you know, typically that goes very wrong when someone's on a downswing and they try and increase their stakes to have the one big day that's going to turn mm -hmm. everything around. Oh, absolutely. And that, that feeling sets in when you're desensitized to the amount of losses. You might be on a session where you're losing 10% of your bankroll and you know you already are way past the point where you should have stopped. And then it's sort of like, why stop now? I yeah, might as well, as well continue. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's gonna be it either is gonna be okay and I'm gonna have an incredible story, or it's just gonna be the worst day of my career, regardless. And then mm -hmm. you just keep going. And unfortunately, it happens uh, way too often. And uh once again, you know, just being more self-aware and, and uh, having those soft skills um, at the higher level, it can really save you a lot of money in, in that place, especially when people really cripple their bankroll. It's not just a one-time event. It is a midterm to long-term effect. It can set you back in your progress for a long time, especially for the low-stakes, mid-stakes grinders Oftentimes, the bankroll is the only thing that stops them from achieving uh, more financial success. It's not the lack of skill. It's more the lack of financial position. Yeah, and I mean, if, if you risk your bankroll to an extent, I mean, if we go back to the MTT side of things, if you risk your bankroll to an extent that you're going to need to join a stable or get a backer, you then you're going to give away half of the profits. You're going to have to make double the amount of money to stay where you are. And that, that's a really big deal. And I think a lot of people, they see it as such a, um, a safety net or like, oh, if I bust my role, I'll just join a stable. It's fine. And, and they really need to understand. And there's a lot of value from stables. You can get some great coaching. Obviously, someone else is paying for the buy-ins. But you have to make double the money to stay still. And, and that's that's a big shift, especially, you know, these days. So, you know, really be very mindful of your bankroll, um, especially if you're self-funded, because, yeah, there's um, it's a very big difference. Um, if you do need to rely on someone else for money, they're going to need their cut of it to make it worthwhile covering you. And that changes the maths pretty substantially. Yeah, absolutely. And that being said, for some people, taking the backer's money or using the backer's money, being in the stable or being staked uh, in cash games for a long term, it is allowing them to play better because they have less emotions involved, involved in the game, which is the reason why some of them choose that path in the first place. But well, another the, solution would be just improve that soft skill and, and become better with managing your emotions and become better at, at uh, making rational decisions at the table. Yeah, and I mean, I, I definitely don't think stables are a bad thing. And I, there are a number of players who definitely play better because they're backed and have definitely made more money because they're backed. Um, but certainly if you're currently self-funded and you're thinking, I struggle with the pressure, working on your mindset and no longer struggling with that pressure is probably vastly 
more beneficial than taking someone else's money and not solving the root cause of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, because as I say, you know, the percentages we're talking about are so substantial that you have to, you have to perform dramatically better to stay in the same place. Um, and as I say, for, for some people it works great. Um, but it's just something that I, I don't know if everyone's quite as aware of how much of it, how much of an advantage it has to give you for it to be particularly profitable for an individual. Yeah. And especially the people who choose, um, being staked or in the stable as a safety net, mm. they usually didn't go into that for the good reasons to begin with. No, no, it's um, the last, it's the last chance saloon for them. Yeah. You know, they've, they've, they've ended up there because they're like, Oh, it doesn't matter. I busted my role. It's fine. Someone's going to stake me. Yeah. Someone will, but it's beware that, you know, it's you, you're going to have to play a lot more poker and have a lot more success to end up in the same place. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of not being emotional and dealing with downswings better and just dealing with all the soft skills better, uh, I often tell people in the downswing, as I already mentioned today, well, take some time off, uh, switch your mind uh, from poker. And very often, it's hard for people to switch off and put their mind to something else because they're, they don't have anything else. Poker is everything. Um, uh, This is actually one of the subjects I push quite a lot on the courses that I do. And and when I speak to poker players, Um, I believe it's incredibly important to have a second hobby that you take quite seriously. Um, And ideally something challenging and ideally something that's relatively variance free. So, um, like going to the gym, um, having, setting yourself fitness goals, because effectively, if you just go to the gym, effect, you'll hit your goals just by turning up, um, join, go to jujitsu, learn a technical skill where there's going to be belts. There's going to be some kind of progression. Uh, rock climbing seems to be a good one. Um, for people who aren't interested in sports, learning something like a language one day a week. Um, if you one day a week work on a language over the year, you will get better at learning that language. It will give you um, a sense of satisfaction that's not always linked to your wins and your losses at the poker table. And I just think having that way of depressurizing things is extraordinarily important for poker players. Mm. And I like that you mentioned all of the hobbies that have that sense of progression. Mm as opposed to just a hobby of, I like to watch black and white Netflix movies. Or, yeah. yeah. Because that is not, especially at the hard times when you're really going through a struggle in poker, that is not going to allow you or enable you to switch off. You're going to watch that movie and still think about what happened. You need to give yourself something, something else that's providing a sense of self-worth. So, okay, my, my week at poker has been bad, but you know, my Japanese is improving. Or, you know, I'm, if you're doing something like rock climbing or jujitsu or something along those lines, um, you won't be thinking about your poker if there's a chance you're going to fall off a rock face. <laughs> you know, you're going you're gonna to be distracted in these enforced flow type activities. Um, so, so that's where if, if you are someone who enjoys sports, it really does make sense to have something like that in place 
that's going to force your mind into a flow state or intense focus on something completely different. Um, and you'll have a sense of achievement, even if it's like hiking up a mountain um, or a big hill, like when you reach the top, even if you had a bad day at poker, there's going to be a sense of satisfaction for reaching the top of that, that hike. Um, and as I say, I think this is something else that so many poker players miss. Their days off are days off watching Netflix. Um, and if you turn those days off into learning something, something that in some way is going to inspire you moving forward or give you some sense of progression, a new social network, um, then it takes some of the pressure off just how important poker is in your life. And then the downswing isn't as painful because you know, hey, I've got rock climbing on Friday to look forward to. And that, that can really improve things. Yeah. And I can already hear some people saying, yeah, but I can, can't do anything on my days off. I'm so tired. I can only watch Netflix. And I'd say, well, here's your problem to begin with. You, because you're not exercising. You, well, either <laughs> you're not exercising or in general, you don't have a balance with your, with your job. You're just exhausting yourself. Your sleep probably suffers. All other aspects of your life probably suffer. Because if you're too tired to do something that is fun, as opposed to just sit on your couch, well, there's a problem. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows that the life is out of balance and it's not sustainable because you then have to... So something else I'll explain to, to players when I'm working with them, ideally we come up with a schedule that you can imagine yourself doing for a year. And I would hope that working to an extent of all you're capable to, of doing off the table is watching TV that certainly shouldn't be something someone considers sustainable for a 12 month, you know, that's not how 2021 should look for any human. Mm -hmm. um, so setting it up to a realistic level of balance where yes, you're going to work hard, but you're going to also make sure that you're not going to burn out and, and crack. And if you're not capable of doing anything else, then at some stage you, you will burn out. It's, it's just, just natural. Mm -hmm. Elliot, I want to ask you a question about what you've just said. Uh, setting a plan for yourself, a goal for yourself, something that you will do for a year. Hmm. And we all know how New Year's resolution is basically a bunch of fooling yourself. Um, how people buy courses and only, only a small fraction of them even watch one third of them. Yeah, It's just the human nature of being overly optimistic of what we want to do and what we can achieve and then not following through. With your work with poker players, and you've helped a lot of people overcome this exact problem, what is helpful for people who don't have a coach who's, who's holding their hand and guiding them through the process and uh, making them accountable? What can people to do to, to be more accountable to themselves? Um, well, the first thing is uh, when you mentioned the New Year's resolutions, one of the main problems with the New Year's resolution side of things is people set extreme goals that are unrealistic for them. So like I said, when you come up with a schedule, I don't want, I don't want a player to come up with a schedule that says, I'm going to be playing 50 hours a week and I'm going to be studying 20 hours a week and I'm going to be in the gym 10 hours a week. It's like, okay, that's going to be an interesting two weeks seeing how you do that. Um, but that's not, that's not going to be how your year runs. It's just not realistic. Um, so what I would say is 
come up with a sustainable plan that you can see as a lifestyle. It's a bit like when you're looking to change your diet, if you're looking to lose weight. Um, if someone says, I'm, I'm just going to eat, I'm going to drink vegetable juice every day. Okay. You're going to lose a lot of weight, probably be quite healthy, potentially. Um, but you're not going to drink vegetable juice for the rest of your life. It's not a sustainable lifestyle. Um, and I, I like to see the same with the way people plan out their poker and their life around poker is I can quite reasonably play this amount of poker, do this amount of study with this amount of socializing. And yes, when the World Series is on, I might play a bit more. And when I'm on vacation, I'll play less. But on average, this is a reasonable way of living. Um, and, I, and I like, I think that's so much more healthy than sending, setting very short extreme periods that lead to burnout. And also that's, it's these short extreme periods where I also see the biggest risk to bankrolls because people get burnt out and that's when they start making the poor decisions with their bankrolls and that can set them back an awfully long way. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, the, the first thing would just be schedule sensibly. Um, and I mean, for myself over like something I found really useful um, with like health and fitness goals and things like that is, is setting literally like multiple decade goals for my health and fitness. So I see it like I'm, I'm coming up to 40 now. My goal at 40 was to be in better shape than 30, which I should hit. My next goal is when I'm 50, I want to be in better shape than 40. And then when I'm 60, I want to be back to 40 again. And if I hit that, I'll be extraordinarily happy. And it's just a case of building a routine that should lead to that over a decade. And nothing else in between matters so much. And, and I think those sorts of frameworks are far healthier than I'm going to do a 90 day string of drinking water mm -hmm. and see what happens because you're just setting yourself up for chaos afterwards. And also, as I say, putting yourself potentially in these mind states that you could put yourself in very high risk situations with your bankroll. Mm -hmm. Does that all make sense as a sort of process? Absolutely. And I want to ask you about the way you set your goals with, um, with being in a better shape. Hmm. Is it very specific or is it just a general sense of, I want to be uh, in a better shape? Gen very, very general. Mm -hmm. So it's general and really more health-based than vanity-based. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, if I can lift more, if I can run further, if I can, you know, whatever else, um, and I feel that my clothes are fitting better, then I feel I'm in better shape. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so, so it's it's not something where it's like, oh, I need to be X percentage body fat or, or whatever else. But I think, it, and even if it's, um, you know, if I hit 50 in 10 years and I'm all I've done is trended in that direction, but I've ended up not quite as good shape when I'm 40, the difference between that and letting myself go is so dramatic. You know, I, I don't know what age is going to do to me over 10 or 20 years. You know, there's a chance I'll be injured and I won't be able to, whatever it might be. Um, but I just think having in my mind, in the back of my mind, it's always, this is a long-term, I'm, I'm framing it in such a long-term nature that it's just the way I live my life is working out the number of times a week I work out. And that is just like how I live rather than a short sprint for a short-term result. If I said, hey, over the next 90 days, I want to lose 20 pounds, it would be possible. But probably by the end of the year, those 20 pounds are back and it hasn't really created any benefit for me. So I believe in creating like these long-term, 
sort of a shift of this is who I am over decades is a, is a much more efficient way of, of making long-term change. Um, and, and that's just, as I say, this has been useful for me personally. Uh, and that's how I frame these things. I really like your approach, uh, especially with the decade-long goals and them being not so specific. Because a lot of people fall into a trap of putting too many numbers, too many, too many metrics to a goal. But the problem with that, as that decade progresses, your perception of what is good for you might change. And then you start you know, shifting the numbers around and adding a zero here or subtracting something, which is not a great way um, to approach your goals, especially the longer, longer term ones. Yeah, especially when it's really more a theme. You know, there's a chance in 10 years, I believe the healthiest thing for me is flexibility. And I don't care about going to the gym and all I'm doing is yoga. And if in eight years time, I believe that's the case, then I'm probably right at that time. You know, that, that's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's why, yeah, like you're saying, like setting the numbers doesn't seem to be relevant, but setting the notion of my intention is to be healthier 10 years from now. And what does it look like this week and next week and future weeks? If I'm not looking to have extreme change now, but I'm looking for that graph to improve over that period. And and I really feel, as I say, for me, this is it's been really useful over the last few years where I've been focusing on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and even applying the same approach to poker, I think it would be very useful if you have a longer term goal in terms of what you want to to achieve, because it, it will be self-evident to anybody that, well, you can't just set a goal 10 years from now, I want a higher win rate than I have right now, because that number doesn't mean anything. What if you're playing yeah. much higher stakes or you're playing more, more tables or you're playing different games, and, yeah. right? But setting a goal of, I want to be very confident in my decisions in poker. I want to feel a specific um, skill. I, I want well, to feel performance um, in th- yeah, those I things. Mean, yeah, I mean, I would set, if I was if I was looking to, to be a pro- poker professional, I would be setting for the end of each year, I'd want to be even more professional by the end of the year. Yeah. And because that's something that, again, it's a bit like healthier, more professional is something you'll understand if you are being more professional or if you're not. Um, and it will be evident to everyone around you, but there's no real numbers connected to that. Mm-hmm. Um, because that can include life balance. It doesn't mean you need to be an extreme because like I've been saying, I, I believe life balance is a part of being professional. Um, but it, it's that sort of framework where if you start to picture of like, what can I do this week? So that at the end of 2021, if I keep repeating this, I'll, I'll feel like I'm a much more professional player by the end mm-hmm. of the year than I am right now. If you, if you start creating that on a week by week basis, but with a longer term plan in place, um, you'll find these subtle shifts end up, you know, increasing edge in in some incremental way. And especially with, let's say, a goal of to be more professional, that is bound to change. The understanding of what it means is bound to change over time. For somebody who's uh, single in their in his early twenties, uh, that goal is completely different. More professional yeah. means just being very hardworking and and going at it. Whereas for somebody who has a family and a bunch of kids running around, being more professional might include having a specific end of day time, having 
days off, scheduled days off, where the rest of the family is yeah. not just surprised. Hey, honey, today I have a day <laughs> you, off. Yeah. I really could have, could have told me, could have told me at and, least yesterday. And, and that's the ironic thing, where being more professional might mean playing less, mm. because it's it's like it's following what you believe is is the best version of life for you. And, and how you believe you should be living your life. And as you say, like over a decade, it will probably shift for most players, but just as a, as a long-term target, something to visualize, I, I think it's just useful to have these sorts of frameworks in place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Elliot, tell me about the course. Is it still on sale? Uh, can people still find it? Um, yeah, so I have um, the A-Game Poker Masterclass um, on Run It Once. Um, so yeah, if you head over to Run It Once, I don't I don't know when when the podcast can be released, but uh, sometimes it's on sale and sometimes it's not. <laughs> so so yeah, go check it out over there. Um, it, it's been it's been fun um, doing the course over these years. Um, so so yeah, definitely go and go and check that one out. And you're still doing the monthly. Uh, We're doing them quarterly now. We're doing quarterly, quarterly calls, okay. yeah. Um, so we did two years of monthly calls, and all of those videos are um, are in the course as well. So there's mm -hmm. a huge number of extra Q and A's covering almost all topics. And now, yeah, we've we've switched to quarterly on those. Yeah, I highly recommend your course. I I oh, thanks, watched it myself. I went through it myself, and uh, everybody that I know who actually used the course, because I know some people who. We all know people who buy a course and never watch it, right? So I can't speak for them. <laughs> but but those who who do uh, follow through, everybody finds at least one gem that really changes the trajectory of where they're going. So I I can highly recommend to people go check it out and uh, and see it. And it was great what you did in the beginning of the pandemic. I remember you were doing those calls. Uh, was it? weekly weekly yeah it was weekly yeah i mean everyone was struggling a lot um so so we just did a ton of calls um over that time um obviously people were really stressed i mean it was about this time last year i think um mm -hmm. yeah everyone was struggling um so so we did loads of those q a calls um just to try and help people out in the way you know it's it's not like i'm a doctor and i can change the world but if i can give up a few extra hours of my time and maybe take some pressure off, answer some more questions um, and build a bit of a community there, which is what we tried to do. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it was a fun time and we tried to give back a little bit. What did you notice from those calls? Because obviously people were addressing also the struggles they're going through um, imposed by the pandemic. A lot of people had to completely shift the way they, well, their, their careers because, well, live poker was not a thing for a while and traveling was was not easy and all the other struggles what were some of the common themes that people were struggling with uh, professionally and personally oh, and the biggest thing was just the live players lost all of their games so so they were going through a, a very difficult time um because certainly like let's say if you've been making a living playing in a local private live game for five or 10 years, which is, you know, the situation that there are poker players out there who they have never had to be in the modern poker environment. Um, they had to really, to continue playing poker, relearn the game. Um, so it was an incredible amount of work for them. Um, 
And then obviously we had all of the the anxiety issues coming up for people because none of us knew what was going on last year. There was a plague, you know, it created a lot of just background anxiety. Um, people had family members die. You know, there's all of those, those sorts of difficulties that, that came with the pandemic. Um, but then the other side of it, and, and I want to be realistic for us in poker, was most industries got hammered by the pandemic and most of the poker players I work with made more money. So, you know, there was an opportunity here where the MTTs became much softer. Lots of people came back to cash games who hadn't played poker in three or four years. Um, you know, GG grew exponentially and there's people all over the world who hadn't been playing poker who were suddenly playing on GG. And, you know, the, so there was this strange situation where, yes, it was harrowing. Yes, it was difficult. But our industry, I, I don't think we can really complain about the way the, the pandemic treated us because most players took advantage of it and then they had more success than they'd had in a number of years. And, and potentially now with America, it looks like America's going to open up to some extent. Um, if that happens, that there's going to be another boom in poker. And, you know, a lot of the concerns that we've had over, over the recent years are going to be really diminish. So, yeah, we sort of tried to help people as much as we could. The live players had a rough time. Um, but I would say the overall theme was I was just being told, wow, these games are incredible. How do I make the most of it? And, and that question probably came up more than any of the negative things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people often get the sense whenever there is a boom, um, the sense of pressure, I have to play as much as I can because this won't last. And very often this will last or at least in some shape or form. So that pressure is self-imposed and unnecessary and adding more anxiety. But how do you see people dealing with that? I remember in my career, again, some 10 years ago, I, I was going through a period where I really felt like I have to play every single moment that I have available because it's just way too good and it won't last. And then 10 years later, I'm still playing and it lasts, but I don't have that pressure and I'm much happier. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, we've seen it. Like, poke, it's the end of poker every year for the last 20 years, I think. It's, you know, it's, there's, always a, there's always this fear that happens and people feel this pressure to put in dramatic hours. Um, there are really rare occasions where it makes sense. Um, you know, there's certain private cash game running with a certain person in it and you have to play crazy hours or... Um, you know, the pandemic, I can understand MTT players putting in more volume than they normally would have through the beginning of the pandemic because it suddenly spiked and there was this feeling of, you know, who knows how, how much money there is out there for this to be in any way sustainable when the economy could potentially crash. Um, so I, I don't want to be absolutely, hey, you should never shift your schedule. There are times when it makes sense to follow the EV, um, but it, it's when it becomes overdramatic. So the way I'll describe it for a cash game player with um, a really good like whale at the table, it's a good spot at the table, um, I, I usually say to them, is this a bi-weekly event or is this something that's happening multiple times in a two-week period? And if it's happening more than once every two weeks, it, it's, not, it's not a strange situation. This is just part of your game. If, if this is happening once a month, then you need to take advantage of it. And you need to play an extra few hours. Um, so it's really just having an idea of, 
am I telling myself this is an incredible spot and I really can't step away from the table? Or am I telling myself that every three days? And if you're telling yourself it every three days, these are just the games you play. Mm-hmm. But if it is a once a month opportunity, and in some cases they are once a month opportunities, then realistically, if you've doubled your hourly, it makes sense to play an extra three hours. Um, so it's just, it's a fine balance. And I don't think there's any correct answer outside of having some awareness around these things. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to be honest to yourself when you're answering these questions, because oftentimes mm-hmm. people would say, yeah, it's it's a regular part of my game uh, when they're winning. But if they're on a downswing, all of a sudden, all the bells are ringing and no, 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 I absolutely have to be there. It's the one opportunity that I will have to get back to even. This is the spot I have to be there, which is a purely emotional decision. And uh, those are usually not so great. And and as we were describing earlier, that's where that burnout starts to hit. Um, Because... They then start playing the extra hours inevitably. Unfortunately, a lot of the time it just goes wrong because they're not playing their best poker either. Then they're in even more of a hole and that that thing continues and continues and continues. Mm, absolutely. Elliot, um, I know that we have um, a time limit for today, so we're <laughs> almost there. And uh, I think it's a, it's a nice point to wrap up, even though there are, so many more questions I would love to discuss with you, but uh, we can always leave it for another time and perhaps make it an annual thing or or yeah, even no or even more frequent. <laughs> uh, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. I, I come away from these conversations with a lot of ideas that I can implement, a lot of ideas that inspire me, and I hope that listeners feel the same way and find at least something uh, that will be of use and um, propel their career in the right direction. Man, thank you so much for having me on. It was always fun. So, uh, so yeah, more than happy to come back again. Absolutely. That's great to hear and uh, we'll definitely make it happen. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description. And of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways about each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up uh, and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.